Well, good morning. As we come up closer to Christmas, the uh, the tendency is for us to shift into nostalgia, shift into that sentimental baby in a manger. But he is not a baby in a manger. He is the king of kings. He died and rose from the dead, and he conquered hell in the grave. And so we're here today because of resurrection. Amen? Hallelujah. So, Father, this morning we pray as we worship you. Lord, let the power of resurrection reverberate in this room. Lord, may every heart, may every soul, may every spirit resonate. Lord, with the frequencies of that resurrection. Lord, may the life, may the commanded blessing mm, ripple through this room this morning. And through the airways to bring deliverance and freedom. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let's worship Him. Isn't it beautiful to see? We've got young people, we've got young adults, and we've got some other people who are a little older. (laughs) Honoring the Lord with passion and with life. I believe it makes the Lord smile down. So, Father, today, We say you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of us lifting up our hands. You are worthy of us moving our feet. You are worthy of us lifting our voice. You are worthy of us looking a little undignified. Father, you are worthy of it all. You deserve it all. Because you are amazing. Can we say amen to that? Thank you, Father. All right. So good to be here. You know, I, I, for those of you that aren't regulars around here, uh, I spent most of last month away, so it's great to have some consecutive Sundays here. And, um, but, you know, I want to say that when we come to Christmas, there are some unique challenges. And, uh, and I'm hoping to address some of those unique challenges. But uh, we have this, there's a scripture in, in Luke 5, and it talks about old wine and new wine. And it talks about Jesus talking, and we're going to go to it in a little bit, but he talks about how people are going to, when the new wine comes, people are going to say the old wine was better. The old wine is better. What is the old wine? Well, it can mean all kinds of things. And if you've been around the church for 50 years, you've probably heard 100 different versions of what that symbolizes and what it represents. But I would would suggest that the sentimentality of religion, the nostalgic feelings that come up when you do religious observances that provoke emotion, that provoke, uh, you know, regurgitate memories or, you know, of piety and, you know, those kinds of things. Those are, those are, those are the, that's the old wine. And the person who's not born again, who's not in touch with what's behind the veil, cannot do anything except those things. See, when you get born again, what God did was he made you able to connect with the invisible. So uh, what happens, though, is people who only know sen- sentimentality can't connect with the invisible. They can only connect with the natural. And so the religious observances are in order to stir a sense of, uh, you know, allevi- uh, to alleviate our guilt, to, to have a, an, a feeling of, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm really devoted. Look at how I was, I almost cried a tear there. During that silent night, you know, it was, it's just, and you know, we're here, we got candles, it's la, 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 la. It feeds something, it satisfies something. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with having warm feelings. There's nothing wrong with remembering good thoughts. And there's nothing wrong with putting every effort into, you know, blessing the Lord in whatever way you can. But he's still saying, listen, there is... There is a wine that's, that's better, and there's a wine that's worse, and men mistake the one for the other. And so part of this morning is, God, help us to see 
which one we're flowing in because we actually usually participate in both. And uh, so the question is, you know, what should this really look like? So I got this message I want to share. I call it, for lack of a good title, Wine and Wineskins. Wine and Wineskins. And the first thing I want to talk about is this. I want to say that everything in God's kingdom has purpose. Everything God does has purpose. There is nothing in the kingdom of God that is purely symbolic. Nothing that God calls us to do is to fulfill some kind of ceremonial uh, uh, need that God has for protocol. It, it's, it's everything, if there is a protocol, if there is an observance, if there is some devout expression historically uh, replicated in the church, it wasn't a standalone observance. It, it wasn't just so we could go away feeling like, all oh, right, I did it. I read my Bible. Oh, I did it. I prayed today. Oh, I did it. I went to church this week. I mean, that was when I, when I was young and we were, I won't even mention the system that we were a part of, but everything was about alleviating guilt. You know, it was like, it's like if you didn't go to church, then you felt guilty about going to church. And what happens is, is uh, once you go to church, then you did it. You were in church. Didn't matter. They had earphones in or listened to the soccer game. <laughs> you were in church. You know, it didn't matter how much attention you were giving to that moment. You were, you were fulfilling the observance necessary X amount of time in the church. <laughs> and that's what nostalgic sort of sentimentality, you, there's this, there's a threshold of guilt you're trying to overcome and, and at some point it, it, it's, it's, it's quelled, it's, it's silenced, it's placated. That's not God. That's not how he's working. That's not why he asks us to do things. He asks us to do things because he has an end in mind, and that end is an outcome. And usually, most of the time, that outcome is so that you can participate in something he wants to give you. Everything that God asks of you is rooted in love. That means he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of you. Which is part of the accusation the enemy has. It's like, oh, he's just this big, egotistical, power-hungry entity that doesn't share anything. No, no, no. That's what the warped, skewed mentality of the fallen mind says, because I wanted more than I deserved. And so, so we need to, to shift out of this mentality that we are placating our guilt, that we are fulfilling some, you know, some... Uh, some you know, empty notion that we're, that there's, but there's something you're getting. It's kind of like this, you know, uh, when you go to piano lessons, we were talking about this the other day, <laughs> you know, sometimes piano teachers get, get frustrated because between one week and the next week, the students have not practiced. And of course, you know, they, they approach this next lesson and they come in and they're feeling a little guilty because they know they're going to be called on the floor. Did you practice this, these things this week? Well, you know. And so we sometimes we're lulled into this world where we practice not to get better, but to make sure we don't have to feel guilty when we see the teacher. But that's, that's not the real purpose of practice, to alleviate guilt. And I mean... It's great, you know, you won't have to feel stupid or like you're wasting your mom's money, right? But at the same time, the reason you practice is not so you don't feel bad in that moment and can get through it without shame. It's to get better. Everything God asks of us is to get better, to get something from him. He is, he is a good God. He has everything. He is consummate goodness, and he wants desperately to share that goodness with us because that's, it's transforming. The glory of God, if you could just get a little closer to God, the glory of God is transforming and fulfilling in a way that we can't even imagine unless we've achieved, unless we've touched some element. And so it's never about obligation. 
It's about reward. It's about blessing. It's about transformation. Can you say amen? amen? So nothing is purely symbolic. Practical outcomes are always the goal. Now, later today, we're going to do a ceremonial kind of thing. It's called, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to drink some sweet juice, not real wine. Maybe we should try the other sometime, just like, like Jesus did. But, <laughs> you know, we're going to have some bread. But it, it's, it's, you know, what is the purpose of that? What is, what is, what is happening when we do that? I'll let Jim answer that later. <laughs> but we want to we escape the world of pure acts of pious penitence, devotion, tokens of submission, observances. And so, um, and so let's settle it in our minds right now. When God says, make a joyful noise, it's not just, yeah, yeah, you have to overcome some reluctance inside of you. You, you know, well, I'm not really a demonstrative, emotionally, emotionally bent person. Let's, let's leave that to die. You know, let, let, let the ecstaticness come from people who are more extrovert. Well, what if something was being imparted to you? What if something was being achieved? What if, what if it was more than, oh, you know, a little check mark on your, you know, a little gold star for this week? What if there were actual outcomes to everything? Well, there are. That's the point. If you have a Bible, we're going to turn to Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. I was listening to this last week. And there's an, a, a scripture here, honestly, for years, you know, you listen to something and you think, man, I mean, people talk about these scriptures here all the time, but it always seems like there's something about this that I don't fully understand. It feels like there's something represented in what Jesus is saying. And you could probably say that for most of the things that Jesus says. We, we get this sort of superficial idea about what he's saying. And then years later, you, you realize that, oh, you know, it was it had layers to it. It was far more significant than you know. Right. Well, let me read this. I'll start reading in verse 33. And it says, and the, now there, he's in the middle of these encounters with, with the religious. And uh, in uh, verse 31, he's responding to a criticism from the scribes and the Pharisees about him spending a lot of time with evil people. He's, he's with the tax collectors, and he's not hanging out with the religious, and they're criticizing that. Not that they want to spend time with him, but, but, but they're just trying to delegitimize everything he does. And he answers, said, you know, well, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician. So following that exchange, it says, then they said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often? Like you care about the disciples of John. <laughs> like, like you're wanting to eviscerate them as well. But, you know, it's convenient for you to, you know, leverage their activities in this moment because it makes your argument, you think. But the hypocrisy is really quite stunning. <laughs> but why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? Likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. <laughs> Yeah, you have to realize what's behind that. These guys were eating and drinking constantly. I mean, you have to realize the contrast in that culture, you know, was, was outward shows of devotion that particularly involved doing things to, to give the appearance that you're very devoted and pious. Always doing those kinds of things. And, and so John came, and obviously he was called to have this austere kind of presentation of the gospel because his message was fire, his message was repentance, his message was, was you know, uh, uh, turning the hearts. And so he's a, you know, he was doing those things, but Jesus comes, and they're doing everything wrong. There, he's going to banquets and parties and he's drinking wine and he's dancing with the kids in the street and, you know, laughing and having fun. And it's like, it's like, wait a minute, this, this doesn't seem to be correct. And there's a number of reasons we know there's, there's some, some things that God was communicating in that. But the contrast here is quite stunning for the culture of the day. 
What Jesus came doing, and, and uh, again, you know, there's another scripture where Jesus points out the hypocrisy that, you know, <laughs> John came not eating and drinking, and you hated him, and I came eating and drinking, and you hate me. So, like, y- there's no pleasing you people. <laughs> right? But this is what Jesus says. He says, he said, can you make the friends, this is verse 34, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days come when the bridegroom will take and be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And so we see this imagery there that we're in a season here where, where it's, it's okay to not be fasting and, and doing those, uh, you know, those, those uh, how do you say, those disciplines that, that, that bring, bring death to the body. We're, we're not doing that right now. But then he gives them a parable right after that. And this is the part that is kind of enigmatic because it has so many seeming applications. But when I saw this and heard this this week, I feel like I suddenly got a new insight on what Jesus was getting, getting, putting his finger on. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. I just had that yesterday. I just got my nice holy jeans patch because they were getting too holy. And immediately a new hole appeared right above the old pat, the, the patch. It's like, man. In verse 37, then he goes, he goes, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled out, and the wineskins will be ruined. Now, we don't do this. We use bottles, in some case, boxes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, wineskins. So he's saying, listen, now he's, now he's, he's very defi- definitively turning this to a, a pictorial of New Testament realities of the New Covenant. He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm wanting to pour out new wine that's better than the old wine, but I need a proper container. I need an appropriate structure that can hold, that can then keep this, this wine from being lost or destroyed or become unuseful. And, uh, and so and then he follows it by saying, but new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. So the whole thing is about the preservation of the wineskin and the wine. Not just the wine, but the wineskin as well. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires the new, for he says old is better. And there's a lot we could say about that, but I, I may not get to it today. Here's what I want to focus on for the moment. It's this issue, Father, I pray for a spirit of revelation. God, that you show us what you are doing in Jesus' name. What it comes down to is this, is there is a duality to the work that God is doing in our lives. There's, there's two sides to this. On the one hand, he wants to give you new wine. On the other hand, he's saying, you don't have a wineskin that can maintain the kind of wine that I want to give you. So I need to be working on your wineskin. That's what I'm working on right now, your wineskin. And so until I work and get the wineskin that I want, I don't want to put you in the precarious position where I'm giving you wine that you can't contain. So what does that have to do with fasting and praying then? Right? Because the whole context says your disciples are spending all their time, you know, in frivolous things. They're not pious or devotion, given to devotion. They're just, they're just having a great good old time, walking through the fields and eating whatever they want on the Sabbath. What is this? You know, no restraint, no vision, no consideration for the, the law. 
This is what he's saying. Here's, here it is. Fasting and praying. Fasting and praying gives you access to new wine. This is what he said. Fasting and praying gives you access to new wine. But right now, I need to work on the wineskins. And because the wineskins aren't ready, I don't want them going into this realm where they're pursuing the new wine. I'm busy fixing the wineskin. But the day is going to come where they're going to be ready for new wine. They're just not ready right now. And so it would be remiss for me to give them instructions on how to access new, this new wine if they got no place to put it. That's no safe place to put it. Yeah. And so let me look at a couple other scriptures. One is in uh, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, Jesus, I think it's right, verse 1. Let's go right back there. Scrolling down, you can hear the sound of scrolling pages. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. This is what it says. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So he is going into the wilderness. He's already, he's already had a moment where he's been at, at the river Jordan and the Spirit of God came down on him. So he's being led by the Spirit and he, the, the Spirit takes him into the wilderness. So we have this wilderness moment and then he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. In those days he ate nothing. What's that? It's called fasting. <laughs> I love the fasting where, you know, I'm fasting lima beans all this week. <laughs> <laughs> it's a form of fasting. No, he ate nothing. And afterwards, when, he had, when, they, uh, when they had ended, when the 40 days were done, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to be bread. You're very familiar with this. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the word of every, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, all authority, uh, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours, except you'll be subservient to me. <laughs> in other words, you have nothing still. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Uh, and uh, Jesus answered and said, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, that's not even the part I wanted to read to you. This is the part I wanted to read to you. But this, this is what happened. The testing, he went without food. See, the testing is also important. But we don't have time. To, the testing is the proving of the character that you have or has been de developed in you. But then it says, verse 14, then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit and news of him went out through all the region, the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Here's the thing. He was led by the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. But after fasting and prayer, he came out in the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit is different than just being filled with the Spirit. Fasting and praying has to do with acquiring the power of the Spirit. But what Jesus was saying, and this is what is so important, is if you have more power than your character can contain, you're going to get yourself into problems. If you don't have the character to deal with what comes with power. So what comes with power? Here's what comes with power. Fame. A sense of importance. Elevation. Praise. Uh, in the case of our present world, money. 
You start, you start doing meetings and raising the dead and people coming to your meetings who have, you know, need a new foot, a new back or have cancer, they will give loads of money. And we've seen this again and again, where evangelists who operate in great power all of a sudden are hit with levels of fame that their character cannot handle. And what happens is the wineskin is broken. The, the, their, their, their ability to walk in what they're carrying is not, it's just not viable. And they lose what God had given them. So here's what Jesus is saying. And this is really, really important for us because, you know, in our circles, and I, I have to do this dance all the time because in the circles that I run in, most people are looking for revival power. Most people are looking for the signs and the wonders and the resurrections and these kinds of things. And you think, you know, if God can do these things, why doesn't he just do them more? Not because he can't, but because you can't. Not because he can't, but because we can't. He can't risk losing us by giving us more power than we presently can deal with. And so we, we see another picture of that. I'm wondering if I wrote down the verse. Yeah, Luke, Luke 10, later on, he sends the disciples out, and they go out two by two, and all of a sudden they start to see the stuff. They start to get, you know, healings start coming. People are touched by the Holy Spirit. They step into homes, and demons start coming out of people. And, uh, and they're, they're exuberant, I mean, because... Because this stuff is absolutely powerful. And it, and it is absolutely powerful. Right now, the distinguishing mark of my ministry is not necessarily power. And I've been asking the Lord for more power. And he said, you should fast more. And I said, is lima beans enough? <laughs> no, I'm joking, partially. But the issue is this. God right now is working on our containers. God is working on your humility. God is working on your patience. God is working on your selfish ambition. God is working and to, to, to change the very foundation of your character so that he can use you in ways that you can't imagine. And the whole thing, what's holding back everything is not him. Well, it is him, but it's because of you. It's because of his love of you. It's because he doesn't want to lose you. I mean, uh, there was a time in my life, I, as a young believer, I got all these prophetic promises. And, you know, so as soon as I finished Bible college, I go, let's giddy up. Let's go, Lord. Come on. Let's, let's do this stuff. And instead, what I got was 40 years of more training. I mean, I had moments of what God did with me. It's like it's catch and release, catch and release. You know what that means? That means he, he gives you a taste of a realm of power to see how your psyche is going to respond to that. If all of a sudden you're like, hallelujah, look at me, man of power and glory. Now, well, you think, well, I could handle it. I could handle it. If the power of the universe suddenly came on me and there could only be one, it should be me. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. So what do we do then? Do we not fast? Do we not pray? Do we just live without restraint? No, because what the Lord is doing, I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying to you this, go ahead, pray and fast. But if you pray and you fast amiss to get beyond your, your pay grade, that's not going to work. Well, anyway, getting back to the disciples, they come back to Jesus, and uh, they're, they're marveling. They're like, wow, this is amazing. Because not only was the effect of what they're saying, but let me tell you something about the power anointing. Um, let me see how much time do I have. I got time. Uh, I, I, some years ago, Somebody paid for me to go down to California to an event to see a well-known evangelist. I could tell you his name. It was Morris Sorello. And, uh, and they, uh, they paid for me to go down there. I thought, ah, you know, I didn't necessarily want to go to a Morris Sorello event, but I thought a free trip to California is great. 
So I went down to California, and while I'm on the plane, suddenly I was reading this book, and I heard the Holy Spirit with an internal, internal uh, audible voice say, why are you going down? And it was one of those moments where I didn't even realize the Lord immediately was speaking, but I thought, yeah, why am I going down? The Lord does that. He asks you questions, not because he doesn't know the answer, but he wants you to ask the question. <laughs> he wants to raise the level of your intrigue. So I said, yeah, why am I going down? And then suddenly the Lord spoke to me in her audible voice. It's only happened a dozen times in my life. But it was, Morris Sorello is going to lay hands on you. You're going to receive an anointing of power. And I, I thought, oh, wow, that'll be cool. Of course, immediately I imagine what that's going to be like. You know, he's going to be praying for people. I'm going to go in a lineup and get prayed for and bada boom, bada bing. There we go. We're going to have a new anointing. I go down there. There's 5,000 people at this event. And the first thing he announced the first day is, the Lord has told me not to pray for anyone. And I'm thinking, well... How's this going to work? And there must be some back way. So I, I did what any good Christian would do. Started looking for a back, you know, hidden pathway to the behind stage so I could catch him when he leaves the stage sometime. And, you know, because that's what the disciples did, right? Remember they went through the roof, right? Huh? Come on. God blesses the sneaky. <laughs> Anyway, so I, I couldn't, couldn't it, it wasn't working, but I had a friend who was on his board. And so I said to him, hey, John, is there any chance you could get me an audience with Morris Sorrell? Because the Holy Spirit told me he was going to pray for me and I would receive this anointing of power. Anyway, I'm, I'm telling you more details than I probably need to tell you, but it's kind of a fun story. And so he asks him and he comes back and says, yeah, no, he's not seeing anyone. And by not anyone, not plebeians like me. And so I thought, okay, well, Lord, you know, did I not hear you? What's going on? Now, I had arranged some speaking engagements afterwards, but as, I, as, as poorly as my administration was, I never followed up. And those meetings were not happening. So I was stuck down there for a couple of days. I had no money. My friend John gave me his extra money. I went and stayed in the Penny Annie Inn. And it happened that at Melody Land Christian Center, there was a, a R.W. Schambach conference, camp meeting going on. So I started attending that. And the second day of that event, I came out of the parking lot, and I'm thinking, where should I go for lunch? I didn't know anybody. It was all by myself. And uh, suddenly, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, go to the 14th floor of the Anaheim Hilton. Morisarella will be there. He'll lay hands on you. You know, when something happens like that, and it, there's a cost to it, you immediately think, was that real? Like, did that even really happen? But I knew it did, and I knew God was saying go. So I walked over, it was about a half a mile to the Anaheim Hilton. I go into the hotel, and it says, you know, it's the executive levels, 13th and 14th floor. So my, I went up there, they, the button took me there. So I get up there, and I'm walking around, and I'm thinking, is he going to come out of a room? I'm feeling out of place. I feel like I don't belong here. I'm like the woman with the issue of blood, you know. It's like you, sh you shouldn't be touching the anointed. You might get stoned. Anyway, I'm feeling on so many levels uncomfortable, but I walk up, and I see this open room, and when I come to the side of it, I look in, and there's one table setting I can see in this business lounge. It's the Executive Hilton 14th floor lounge at, in the Anaheim Hilton there in, in Anaheim. And I'm looking at the one table, and there's four people around it. It's Morris Sorello and his wife, and R.W. Shambach and his wife. Evidently, he got a ride over, and I had to walk because he made it there before me. Anyway, so I thought, I thought, you know, I feel out of place, but I'm just going to go in. I'm going to do what all those people of faith did before them. They went into areas they were not allowed to go. You know, they, uh, they uh, so I, I, I just ventured because I thought, well, if those guys could take the roof tiles off a roof and let their, I can walk in the lounge I'm not supposed to be in. Anyway, I got prayed for that night and an anointing hit me. I mean, I literally jackhammered around the business lounge. There's all kinds of unsaved people in there having lunch. I didn't even know what they were thinking, but I, I didn't care, honestly. Went back to my room that night. I tried to sleep, uh, and uh, I was watching TV, you know, hoping to doze off 11, 12, and it was 1. And I thought, wow, 1 o'clock, I better just turn off the TV, and, you know, it's probably nervous energy or something. I lay there, 
still and I could feel the power in my body. It was physical. It was it would go up to my head. That's the sound it made. <laughs> exactly like that. I honestly it was like a, a like waves of power going to my feet and back out of my head. I laid there till five AM before I finally fell asleep. Now let me say this, three times, only three times have I seen that anointing. It is absolutely stunning. Let me tell you some of the kinds of things that happened. People were literally catapulted in the air when I laid hands on them. I'm talking being in Latvia, I'm talking about 70-year-old people onto a, a, a hard concrete or wooden floor over wooden benches. I mean, they, they sailed through the air. When I touched them, uh, uh, the anointing was so powerful. It felt like a vortex, like a spinning wind in the, in the room above my head. And at one moment, all of a sudden, I felt this shift and I felt this heavy, heavy aggression. And I knew right away demons were coming out of people. And when I turned and looked at the crowd, five or six people just fell to the ground, began wiggling like snakes. I mean, it, it just went on and on, demonstrations of power. But the most important part of this, I felt superhuman. I felt like, uh, I mean, if you've ever had a moment, you know, where you scored a goal playing soccer, or, or you know, had a had a good recital in piano, and you, or somebody you respected praised you, and you felt like, oh, I'm so good at this. Anybody ever have a successful moment where you relished the the affirmation and that plateau of success? Well, multiply that times a hundred. Because the power of the kingdom of heaven, when it comes on you in those kinds of doses, it is invigorating. It is, a, what it, what it's a, it is inebriating to your ego. And so what Jesus is saying is, I can't prematurely expose my disciples to this. I have to change their root character issues. I have to touch them deeply. I need to bring a deeper level of repentance. I need to bring a deeper level of humility to them because when this power comes, they might not be able to handle it. So in this moment, in Luke 10, it's really a trial. He's given them an anointing. They go out and they come back and they're like I was when I tasted that anointing the first time. This is amazing! I just can't wait till, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the greatest evangelist the earth has ever seen. I mean, these are the kinds of things it creates in you, this masters of the universe kind of power you might see in a cartoon or sci-fi movie, but it's real. But like, the, like us, he warns the disciples. This is what he says. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. In other words, don't let this give you a sense of yourself that causes you to begin to relish and focus on the empowerment in the moment. I mean, when I was in that meeting in, in Latvia, I remember looking at somebody 25 feet away, just pointing at them, and it was like lightning came out of the end of my finger. And within seconds, they began to vibrate. I could see their body filling with water. And when it got to about their waist, they began to whirl, and then they would fall, fall down. All I did was point. Are we ready for that? Why am I saying these things? Because God is going to pour out this kind of power, and he's looking for vessels. He's looking for wineskins. He's looking for ones that can handle that kind of power. But like these ones here, he, he has to exhort them, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Do not rejoice of your present authority and competence and greatness that you feel inside your being. Don't rejoice. But instead, this is what he says, instead, don't rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Why? We are prone to pride. We are prone to superiority. We are prone to feeling 
like the biggest person in the room. And uh, you think, well, I'm not. It's funny, right? Because I remember a friend of ours when we were married, they, were, uh, they had this yo-yo life. And I say yo-yo by this. I mean, I mean, one minute they were like despondent and depressed and, and overwhelmed with the frustrations of life because they would say, oh, nobody likes me. I have no friends. And then something would happen. They would have a friend and they would, you know, something positive. And the next week they come back and it's like, I'm on top of the world. Everybody loves me. I am the best. I am so special. And of course, the next week, it was kind of a bipolar thing. I don't know if they actually had the condition, but it was, it was this back and forth. It's one week, I'm nothing. I'm a worm. Next week, I am the greatest. Now, you may think, wow, that's not me. I, I don't waver that much. But here's the question. Have you had the chance to waver that much? See, we, we think we know. We think we know what it takes to walk in this level of power. Years ago, I decided that I was not going to criticize God's generals anymore. Well, you why? Well, what about when they do things wrong? I don't care. I don't care if they do things wrong. It's not my, they're not my disciples, and they're not my children. And furthermore, I don't have the right to criticize them because I don't know what they walk in. But once I had tasted of that kind of power, and I started to look at some of these guys, I thought they experienced this every time they get up on a stage. I mean, they experience the the power of the age to come, Hebrews calls it, on a regular basis, on a scale. Most of us would not even dream to walk in. So, you know, people say, yeah, but this one's egotistical, and this one's, you know, said this wrong, and this one has a jet. I mean, who has a jet? What about the poor? (laughs) You know, it always goes on. Sometimes, you know, when you say that, you're kind of like the Pharisees, you know, John's disciples. (laughs) What about the poor? It's not my business. It's not the very fact that anybody who's walking this kind of power is even remotely sane is a miracle. And God is looking for containers for this kind of power. You know what the problem is? He can't find very many. They actually explode, you know, What's that? Uh, a flash in the pan. You know, the shooting star syndrome. They, they can... Like, it's, it's very hard for him to find somebody. So we should not be hating these people or criticizing these people. We should be praying for them in humility, recognizing that maybe the reason they have it is not because of some heavenly administrative error and our names were substituted for theirs, but maybe they had something that God saw was valuable. Maybe they had a wineskin that could handle this. And maybe when they were going through the trials and the temptations in the wilderness of their life, being tempted by Satan, maybe they passed the test. Maybe they walked through the barriers and they didn't resent their, their husband and they didn't attack the church and they didn't become bitter against the fact that this ministry over here didn't do me right. Maybe those were the tests. And they kept their heart right and they loved and they blessed and they interceded and they walked in humility concerning the rest of the church. Maybe that's what they did. And so then they came out of that wilderness in the power of the Spirit. What are we saying? When God is asking for praise, it's to give you something. When God is asking for you to clap your hands and open your mouth, when God is asking you to dance, when God is asking you for acts of service, when God is asking you to fast, when God is asking you to, you know, you, sh- you should be, uh, don't, don't alienate yourself from the body of Christ. You need to be with others worshiping. It's not because there's some kind of religious obligation. He means to give you something. Everything that happens in our lives is to create opportunities for us to walk in more of what he wants to give us. So, 
In a few minutes, we're going to have celebrate the Lord's Supper. Chris is going to come up and lead us. Now, the question is this. The question is this. What is, what is being given to us? Is this just ceremony? When we take the wine and take the bread, is it just symbolic? Well, there are some traditions that would say, well, no, it's, there's actually a transformation. The juice miraculously becomes the blood of Jesus, though it doesn't taste like blood. It still tastes like sugar. Well, we don't ascribe to that. But I do believe this, that even though I couldn't say exactly what's being achieved every time I eat that bread, something is being imparted to me when I do it in faith. Something is being released when I do it in faith. When I pray, when I pray in tongues, when I come early to pray, it's not to self-congratulate myself that I got there and prayed that extra half an hour and I'm more pious than anybody else. It's because there's something practical being gained. And I'm praying this this morning, that in this, this season where traditions, where observances sort of bubble to the top and everybody and their dog starts doing these things because it's the one time a year when you feel compelled to alleviate your guilt, that we will come through the other side, that we could create a climate where we're not stuck in the nostalgia of observances and actually begin to communicate not that old wine, but the new wine. I want people to come into this building on Christmas Eve and not just to be impressed with the nuances of candles and wonderful songs. I mean, we want to create a beautiful aesthetic environment, but it doesn't end there. It just barely starts there. But I believe that if we are focused the right way, us in this church, if, and that focus doesn't just begin in the Christmas season, it's every week of every year. It's every time you give yourself to spiritual disciplines, knowing it's not to escape my culpability, but it's to add something of the power, a real dimension of the glory of God to my life. Then maybe when others coming in looking for the old wine on a, on, a, on a December 24th, they might just stumble into the new wine. They might find that there is a dimension of glory, a presence and a power in the atmosphere that's beyond sentimental. But to, for that to happen, we ourselves have to come over the top of what it feels like to do these things at Christmas because there is a power that wants you to lull you into that emotional vortex and nullify your effectiveness during the season. This could be potentially the greatest season for being a witness to our community because it's the time when they're most open to hear from us or to be around us. Let's not make the mistake of giving them the old wine alone. Alone. The new wine. Worship in spirit and in truth. Faith release, atmosphere release, glory that penetrates the darkness. Let's stand together. Father, we just say today, Lord, we want to rise above the nostalgia. We want to rise above uh, the systems we have devised that Often are the, I don't know how you say it, they're the, the trees that blind you to the forest or the forest that blinds you to the trees. But Father, I pray, God, that we begin to see everything you're calling us to do. Father, that our motivations and the seat of our, our heart would shift away away from ourselves toward you. Father, we ask today for a miracle. God, we ask for a miracle. Let's lean into this for a second. I ask for a miracle, and I'm not just asking for us here in the room. We're asking for the church. We're asking for your people. We're asking for every assembled 
congregation in Spruce Grove and Parkland County. We ask God that suddenly what is known of you might begin to break forth in the midst of traditional celebrations. God, we ask for an anointing and a presence and a dynamic of power. God, to fall on your people throughout this city, this region, this community. God, we say deliver us, Father, from the paralyzing power of traditional observances that have no power. Lord, we come against the inoculating force that is in religious observances. We come against, Lord, that's, that uh, uh, it's, it's like a misty's atmosphere that lulls us into sleep and lethargy. Father, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, Lord, shift us during this Christmas season. Shift us during this time. Father, may we man our posts. May we take our places on the watchtower. May we stand in the gates of our city during this time. So God, I just want to say to you this morning, as Mark's talking, I'm just so overwhelmed and reminded of the trials that you've brought me through to give me a new wineskin. So God, this morning, I want to thank you for the time in the desert. I want to thank you for what you brought me through. I want to thank you for the difficulty. God, I want to thank you. Spirit of God, you were always with me through every single step. You never left me. You never forsook me. God, when I was in the darkest, deepest place, your spirit was with me, and I see now. I see now, God, what you were doing. I don't begrudge the things that you brought me through. I don't look back and say, I never want to be there again. I don't look back and say, what the heck was that? Oh, whatever, I'll just move on. But I actually want to say, God, I see what you were doing, and I thank you for the difficulty of this last season. It is for so much good. It is for so much good, and I bless you. I bless you. I don't curse you. I bless you. Oh, Father, I will stop complaining about how hard the desert was, and I will praise you for bringing me through it. Bless you, Father. Bless you, Father, that you even took me through the desert. Bless you, Father, that you wanted to switch me out with something new. And I pray, oh God, I pray, I pray, oh boy, oh God, that I would have this new wineskin. Oh, Father, if this is your prayer this morning, just lean into the Lord. God, I pray that that desert wasn't for nothing. I pray, God, that I would receive this wineskin. And even right now, Father, I receive the new thing that you're doing. Father, I just hear the Lord saying this morning that the key to you receiving the new wineskin, and he's saying it to me, but it's for anybody here. The key is that when you can see what I was really doing and you let go of the begrudging and the moaning and the complaining and even the confusion of the last season, but he says, I am a good God. Every good and perfect thing comes from me and I turn everything towards the development of your character and who you are. And I see him saying that if even in this morning you will see the way I see what I've been doing in your life and that your morning <laughs> turns to joy. He's making beauty for ashes. Joy for mourning. Praise for heaviness. That you will receive your new wineskin. So, Father, forgive me for my complaining and my moaning and my begrudging and my confusion, and I choose this morning to see it for what it is.
to see what you've been doing for what it is and I actually say I'm coming into your gates with thanksgiving and I'm coming into your courts with praise because you are a good God. Thank you, Lord. So Pastor Mark kind of made the funny comment that I would, I would explain something about communion and, and I sort of will. <laughs> uh, we can see that even in scripture, sometimes people did actually make an altar to remember something. They would actually set up stones so that when they would see it, they would remember. The tradition, there's nothing evil about tradition when it brings us uh, as a means to remembrance as opposed to as an end to feeling nostalgic. Does that make sense? So in this Christmas season, we actually do want to remember Christ's coming. Of course we do. And, and we love to have an entire season dedicated towards reminding us consistently of that. That's fabulous. There is nothing wrong with that so long as we don't just fall into that. Oh, well, now I remembered. What's the point of remembering? What's the point of his coming? Why did he come? And what does it mean to us? That's the point. And when we go into communion, it's a very similar thing. It's not, it's not that somehow by doing this, we become holy. It's, a, it's an altar of remembrance. It's a time when we, can, when we can directly reflect. And it's a time when we correctly discern the body. When we begin to remember that we are supposed to love one another. That we are supposed to be in unity with one another. The correct discerning of his body. This is a time when we can stop and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, let me just, let me just remember here for a minute what really matters. And so... The, the symbology of it is actually critical for us to come into that remembrance and to allow the Holy Spirit once again to stop and just allow the Holy Spirit to minister his truth to our hearts. So it's, it has a symbology to it and there's, there's a piece to that that has a power in it, but it's well beyond the tradition. It's in the power of what we allow his Holy Spirit to do in our hearts at that time. Amen. So, for those that are looking to only alleviate their guilt, remembering is an end. But those who want to walk in faith, the remembering is a beginning. It is a launching place, not a stopping place. And so that's a great picture for us. So I'm going to call Chris up here right away. But we're going to do a 21-day fast. And uh, we'll hopefully talk more about it, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after on the, 20, on the 1st, January 1st, where, st- where you are going to meet. On the 1st. But we're, we're spending 21 days. We're seeking the Lord because... We need anointing. We need breakthrough. We need the power of the Spirit in our lives in a new way. But here's what we do. We do with faith and trust that he knows what kind of release we can handle right now. So he has his hand on the button. He is the one who tethers us. Not the enemy. Not others. But the Lord. We are his servants. We are his workmanship. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you during this time to do what you need to do in our hearts to prepare us for more power. Chris? There's no substitute for living water, right? Nothing. You know, I have so many thoughts that go through my mind when I think of communion. And to be honest, while I was just sitting there, I was thinking of what I was going to say, and the one thing that I actually started to think about was the first time I took communion. 17 years old, just got saved at this altar. I remember the first time I held the wine and I held the bread in my hand. And when I began to say those, in a sense, traditional words that we always do say, the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us. In that moment, it meant more to me than anything in the world. In that moment, I realized that he did something for me that was so 
powerful, so amazing. I remember a flood of all those actions, those behaviors that I participated in, and in a second, he was willing to forgive me of all of that. And then it made me think of the Christmas season. I'm thankful for this season. The birth of Christ, the starting of events that would take place to shift everything, that would end with Christ dying on the cross for the forgiveness of all of our sins. We really have to understand the power of this, especially in this season. Some of us are going to spend time with family and friends. Some of us, we're going to be with people that maybe those relationships are strained. Maybe there's some pain that comes with the Christmas season because of that. But I feel like in this season, I'm so thankful for what he did. I want to be able to do that for others. I don't want to put on a smiley face and say Merry Christmas. I actually want to love the people that I'm going to sit with. I want to love the people I'm going to dine with. And today I choose to forgive them. I choose to do what he did for me. I choose to lay all of that down. And may this season be more than just a meal that maybe we have once every 12 months together. May it be a start of healing. A love that we haven't experienced in years with loved ones, family. May it be just something so beautiful. December 25th. I encourage you to spend some time honoring the one that made all of this possible.